I'd like to take some time on our 22nd anniversary to remind us who we are. Because knowing who we are determines what we do. As a pastor called by God to teach and proclaim His infallible Word, I look across the American church, the landscape, and see that it's weakened because it has adopted popular causes rather than scriptural causes. How can the church write a ship that is turning to the left and to the right and not sticking with the commission? We even sang about the commission today that Christ gave the church. Well, of all the needs of the modern church, I believe the need that is greatest is to have a true vision of Christ. Maybe what's most lacking in the American church is a high and beautiful view of our God and of our Savior. A true vision of Jesus in all of his beautiful character and his brilliant wisdom. Of course, to know the Lord above better, that will allow us to have a more powerful impact on our society, that will allow us to walk more closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. But knowing God and knowing Christ does not come quickly. Would you agree? It's a process. It takes thoughtful and prolonged gaze into the scriptures before we really come to understand God the way he is. Our church has been committed for 22 years to proclaiming God's inerrant word. Dr. MacArthur has a a statement that he says from time to time. When he was here seven years ago, he said it, every word inspired, every word preached. Because God took time to inspire every word in the Bible, we take time to preach every word in the Bible. It's just that simple. Every church teaches from the Bible. That's different from taking every passage and carefully explaining a passage so that when you leave, you know that your belief and your conclusions are based on what is actually in Scripture and not just what the guy up front is saying. In other words, we hold a high standard so you can hold us accountable to teach what's actually in the text of Scripture. Part of our vision statement that we're going to be publishing soon says this, we endeavor to be a congregation committed to listen to God speaking through the passionate weekly exposition of God's unfailing word. This vital biblical unfolding of the full counsel of God's word is the engine the Holy Spirit uses to transform our hearts, renew our minds, and direct and motivate all we do for the kingdom of Christ. It's only by getting to know God through his word that we know the thoughts of God embedded in the scriptures. As we absorb the word and his thoughts become our thoughts, our moment-by-moment thoughts, that's how you grow closer to God. If you want to know how to be sanctified, it comes with the changing of the way you talk to yourself. The thoughts that you have about your world and yourself and other people, the things you say to yourself, as those thoughts are taken out and replaced by what God says, now you'll be a sanctified person. Now you'll be growing in Christ. It really is a battle that goes on in your mind. And that's why you think you have enough Bible. You never have enough Bible because you're not thinking Bible enough in your own mind. So you have to be reminded again and again of what God has said. So the old thoughts will go, the new thoughts will come, and in that moment of temptation, those new thoughts will be there for you. That's why week after week, month after month, line upon line, brick upon brick, you might say, we're building into you the thoughts of Christ so that your mindset will be the very mind of Christ and you'll grow. 
You're getting a different perspective when you come to church than you get from the world. The world and the media and the world and its educational establishment is teaching you to think a certain way. And often some of it is is subtle. But you need to know how to think correctly on every issue that confronts you, every issue that's in the news, every issue that you run into in your family, in your workplace, when you're confronted with various ethical decisions. You need to know what God thinks. So you come to Scripture, and Scripture teaches you a different orientation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. So we're telling you by this kind of preaching, grab onto it. Don't just sit and listen. Grab onto it. Make it part of your thinking. If you're not, then you're not benefiting from the preaching that you're getting. You're not benefiting from the classrooms that you're attending. You're not benefiting from the books that you're reading. You have to grab hold of those thoughts and let them become your thoughts. And that's really what sanctification is all about. Well, to this end, I want to bring you to a short scripture today. We're going to focus on the church today because it's our anniversary service. And I want you to see how God views the church because I want you to view the church the way God views the church. And by viewing the church that way, you'll take on the priorities of the church. In other words, identity and purpose go together, do they not? Dancers do what? They dance, right? They don't dance, they're not a dancer. Drivers drive, cooks cook, you know what I'm saying. Writers write. Well, when you know who we are as a church, then you know what we do as a church. The text is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This text has a context, as all texts do. According to chapter 1 and verse 1, if you want to glance back there, Peter wrote this epistle somewhere around 64 A.D., around the time that Rome was burned and the Neronian persecutions were about to break out. And he wrote it to Christians that were scattered all over five regions that he lists there in what today would be modern-day Turkey. He wrote this epistle to warn believers that they were likely to suffer, not for doing wrong, but for doing right. They would be busy doing the right things, and they would suffer for the sake of righteousness. In fact, that is the theme of the letter, suffering for the sake of righteousness. It's unfair and it's unjust, but it happens, and it happens all the time. I'll just give you an example. Chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, that was unjust, right? Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Or how about chapter 3 and verse 14? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. In chapter 1, Peter lays out what a great salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ, and we have to reflect on that. He talks about in chapter 1 the fact that you have been born again by the resurrection of Christ through your faith in Christ. You've been born again to a living hope, and this is a fantastic new salvation that you have. And then it goes on to say, because you've been born again into God's family, you have an inheritance. No one can steal it from you. It won't fade away. It won't perish. It's a great eternal heavenly inheritance. And then he rolls on, and he talks about even though you're suffering now with trials in the present, you're looking forward to the fullness of your 
salvation ready to be revealed in the future. In the meantime, God's going to keep you by his power and he's not going to let go of you. In chapter 1, Peter really lays all of that out, this great salvation we have in Jesus. By the time we get into chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, Peter has been comparing two groups of people. There was one group of people that came to Jesus, and Jesus is described as a stone, and they stumbled over this stone. Jesus became a stumbling stone to these people. They heard about him, they they heard about his cross, but they didn't believe in him, and so they stumbled over him and never benefited from him. But other people, Jesus became the cornerstone of a whole new society of stones, of living stones that were growing into a temple that was being built up into a house that would praise God and bring glory and, and honor to God. And that's who we are. We are those people. We're not the other people that stumbled over Jesus the stone. We, we regard Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. Two very different groups, diametrically opposed to one another. That's why Peter goes into verses 9 and 10 and he provides four titles that are applicable only to Christians. These are four titles that you can bear. These are four titles that we can bear as a church. These are true of us. Do you see them? They're not hard to spot and they're going to form our outline today. You are a, what's the first one? A chosen race. A royal priesthood is number two. A holy nation, number three. A people for God's own possession, number four. Let's go through these. Let's talk about these. What do they mean? Your first identity, who you are, a chosen race. But you are a chosen race. Now notice that word but expressing a contrast. Unlike the unbelievers who stumbled to their doom over Jesus Christ because they refused to bow to his authority, they refused to believe in him, God has a radically different view of you. And he's got a radically different destiny for you. You believers in Jesus are genos eklekton, a chosen race. What a beautiful and reassuring designation for believers. There are really two parts to this title. Let's start with a second. We Christians form a race. Did you know that? It's one thing to say that we are a people... It's one thing to say we're an organization or that we are a body. All of that is true. But God also views us as a distinct race. You say, what? Yes, we are a distinct race in God's economy. The Greek term genos is where we get our word genealogy. It is often translated as offspring or people. Sometimes it's translated as kind when it's referring to different kinds of animals. It means those who share a common heritage. We believers have the same new life in Christ, given the same spiritual birth in Christ. We have the same origin. Just glance back to chapter 1, verse 3. I mentioned this before, but it says that his great mercy, God's great mercy has caused us, that's everybody, everyone that's a believer in Jesus, caused us to be born again. Please notice you don't cause your own birth. God causes the birth. God is the one that works upon you, and he brings you forth. You don't bring yourself forth. His great mercy caused you to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again to a living hope. We're also born again, and we've entered in this new birth into a new race. Your old race is no longer you. You're in a new race. 
People talk a lot about the races these days. One common political tactic is to try to do anything you can to label your opponent a what? A racist, because if, if you can put that tag on them, nobody's going to vote for them, right? People widely assume that there's an African race, there's a European race, a South American race, an Asian race, but none of those are races. None of them. Those are all misnomers. Our world has distinct cultures, it has distinct ethnicities, nationalities, languages, but not distinct races. For to be a distinct race, we would have to have different origins. We would have to have different ancestors. We'd have to have different progenitors. And guess what? We don't. Our common genes prove that scientifically now, but those of us that trust Scripture didn't need that, did we? Genesis, and by the way, Genesis is the only factual written account of early human history to know how it got started and where we came from. It declares that we all came from one man and woman. The idea of different races is really an evolutionary hangover, and it has false and misleading conclusions. It often leads to prejudice where one race actually does think they're different than the other race, and superior, by the way. Physically speaking, and I wish everyone would think this way and understand this, physically speaking, there is only one race. It's the human race. We're part of the first race in the first man. His name was Adam. That race, folks, is not a chosen race. It is a fallen race, a disgraced race, a race descended into sin, evil, false worship, and therefore ending in death. The death sentence is upon the human race. The human race has been rejected by the one who gives life. God gives life. God withdrew life from the human race, and now we die. We die. All of us die. And that shows God's rejection of the human race. Of course, the false churches that are out there, they put their little slogans out on their signs, and they, they put out something that sounds like, we are all children of God. You ever read that? makes me sick. We're all children of God. Sounds so lovely, but it's so misleading. Yes, of course, we're all created by God in that sense. But the human race was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Didn't they read that? They were forbidden access to God's presence. God put an angel there, refusing to allow them to come back into his presence in paradise. You know what that means? Rejected. To prove God's rejection of us, we all continue to die. So that rejected race could never be God's chosen race. That's why God's creating a new humanity. He's creating a new race with a different progenitor. Not Adam, but who? Jesus Christ. He's the head of a new race. His origin was not from earth. Adam's name, you know, means of the earth. He was from the earth, and our origin is from the earth. Jesus' origin was not from earth. He made that clear when he spoke to everyone. He said, I am the living bread that came down where? Out of heaven. They thought he was nuts. He said, I came down out of heaven. That's the incarnation. God, the second person of the Trinity, came down and took on a human body in the womb of a virgin. And that means he came down out of heaven, a new race, a new origin and a new race. In John 3.13, he said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, the name he gave himself. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 47, it says, The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, spiritual race. The new race are those born into Jesus Christ. The Bible says they're born again. Sometimes it says they're born of the Spirit. Or Jesus would say, born from above. Do you see all that's the same thing? 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. New race, new life, new family. John 3, 3. Jesus was speaking to a religious man. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That new race is a redeemed race. It's bought back from sin by the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is why Jesus was raised from the dead bodily to a new kind of life and a new kind of existence to impart life to all who would believe in him. He did not just conquer death. He now imparts life to everyone else in that new race. Listen, only those who are in Christ by faith are or ever can be part of the new race. Skin color or DNA or family ancestry is irrelevant with this new race. Spiritual position, that is, being in Christ, that's all that matters to be in this race. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be what? Made alive. That's why we are not just another race, but we are a chosen race. That word chosen, electon, refers to our election in Jesus Christ. The word was used back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. We are chosen, it says there. Another way of putting that is God selected us. God chose and he selected us. That's what it means. Now you might remember that this designation was used of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 and 7 God says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, there were many nations around at the time when Israel was in bondage to Egypt. And God could have chosen any of those nations. I mean, he could choose whoever he wants to, and he chose none of them. He could have chosen Egypt, but he said no. He could have chose Babylon or Cush or Edom or Syria or any of those. But God overlooked all of those other nations, and he chose a nation that was enslaved and was small and had no clout at all and had no position in society, had no land, they had nothing. And he chose them, and he made something great out of them. That's what God does. He chose the nation of Israel. That made Israel special. Psalm 33 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. God said, I'm going to give you the whole world. Many people have trouble with the idea that God chooses things for himself, but the Bible is so clear about this. If you were to ignore this, you'd have to do gymnastics all around your Bible because everywhere God is in charge and he's choosing and he's answering to nobody. And if you haven't read that in your Bible, you need to reread your Bible. He chooses people not because there's anything inherently good or worthy in them, but he chooses, he tends to choose the weak and the baseless ones so that he can show his own power and mercy in them, so he can hold them up as trophies and say, do you see what I did with this nincompoop? Do you see what I did with this least likely to achieve person? That's my grace and my mercy. Who gets the credit for that? Not us, him, right? Ephesians 4 says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Listen, God 
picked you to be part of a new race, a race that would finally be obedient to him and would be holy before him and do the things that building up that church so it'll be a house of praise to God. That's what he's doing. Get in line with his purposes. Bring your family in line with his purposes. That's what he's doing. That's our mission. Now we go on to the second identity, and that is a royal priesthood, and this is very good too. Still in verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Some people have the misconception that only some Christians are priests. They come from a church background where the priest is up front doing... X, Y, and Z. Please notice that just as every Christian is part of a chosen race, every Christian is part of the royal priesthood. Do you see that? Do you see that? Every believer, you, if you're a believer, you are, newsflash, a priest. Yes, you are. This is confirmed back in the middle of verse 5, same chapter. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, it says. In the new covenant, and that's what we're under. If any of you are under the old covenant, you need to come into the new covenant, okay? We're not under the old covenant, the old testament. We're in the new covenant, the new testament. In the new covenant, spiritually speaking, we are not only a, a, a temple of people growing in that house, growing in to worship the Lord, that houses the Lord, but we perform the functions of a temple. That is, we are a holy priesthood inside of the temple, offering up sacrifices. And notice it does not say that the leaders in the churches only are the priests. It says, we who make up the living stones in the spiritual house, all of us collectively are a priesthood. This is known as the Bible's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. To reinforce this doctrine, listen to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. God has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Revelation 5. Verses 9 and 10, worthy art thou, speaking to Christ, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And listen, thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The priesthood of all believers simply means that each believer has direct access to God Almighty through one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each believer also represents God to every unbeliever out in the world that does not have access to God. You are their access to God. You give them the gospel. They hear it from you, and then they're brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God. You are a priest. A priest stands between the people and God. That's you. You go out there, and the people may think they know God. They don't know God. They need a priest. That's you. We call that evangelism. 
You go out and you evangelize and you bring the gospel to them and the gospel brings them to Christ and to God. That's what it is, the priesthood of all believers. There is no other priest that stands over you than the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not need to come and ask any leader in church anything. You go straight to God and you say your prayers to God. I don't have to give you access to anything. I don't have to absolve your sins. Couldn't do it anyway. You go straight to God. That's a privilege. Do you see that? That's who you are. You're a kingdom of priests. We go to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a woman told me a few years ago how wonderful it was in her church that they had all these saints that they could pray to. I said, why do you want to go to middle management? Why don't we just go straight to the CEO of the universe? Who wants to waste time, you know, talking to the cabinet members when you can go into the Oval Office, right? You've been invited into the throne room of God as a priest. The, the high priest that you go to sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and you talk to him, and you can intercede for people with your prayers. That's amazing. That's amazing what we are. Listen, uh, priests today don't sacrifice animals. The Lamb of God, who's that? Jesus, he was already sacrificed, right? No more animal sacrifices. So what do we offer up? Paul says we offer up our praises. We offer up prayers. We offer up thanksgivings. Paul uh, likened his own ministry of evangelism as an apostle. He said, I'm bringing Gentiles to the faith, and I'm, they're my offering to God as a priest. Isn't that a beautiful image? You bring someone to Christ, you offer it to Christ. Christ, I hope he glorifies you. I brought him to Christ. He's my offering as a priest I'm giving to you. You come into church, you, you sit there and sing. I hope you're not just mouthing words. You've come in as a priest to offer up things to God. And part of that is your money that you're offering, yes, but a lot of that is your, your thanksgiving that you're giving to God. You're offering up praises to him. We were reconciled to God through the cross, so says Ephesians 2.16. Christ, who is our high priest, is also our sacrifice. Please notice we're not just priests, but a royal priesthood. We serve a king. We serve royalty. According to Revelation 5, we are reign with that king on planet earth. Our service now, we can't see all the benefits of it, will be rewarded in our future reign upon the earth. We can serve Christ, even if we're rejected by the world, knowing that the future holds great things for us because we serve a king. Remember what the thief next to... Jesus said on the cross, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your what? Your kingdom. There's a kingdom. We're going to be part of it. We are part of it now. We're going to see it in all of its glory then. We're a royal priesthood. And that's very, very important. One other thing we offer up to God in our service to him is found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul writes, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your bodies, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your body belongs to God. Offer it up. It's his. Give yourself and your energy and all you have to him. Another aspect of our vision statement says this. As an exalting church, we endeavor to lift up and glorify our most awesome God through heartfelt corporate worship in which we enjoy the presence of God and aim to please him. We express this worship of Almighty God in both spirit and truth through spiritual music, intercessory prayers, loving adoration, genuine thanksgiving, communion at the Lord's Supper, and love-inspired offerings as we lay aside our own desires and present our whole selves to God. That's what we do. We're a royal priesthood. Our third identity is we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. 
We're not only a chosen race and a royal priesthood, but a holy nation. The church is not an earthly nation. Nevertheless, it is a spiritual nation. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, so says Ephesians 2.19. That is what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would be fighting. We live and we move inside this world, but we are not of this world. We are American citizens only secondarily. First and foremost, we are citizens of heaven. We will spend, by the way, much, much more time in that kingdom than this one down here. When we pledge our allegiance to our country, our highest allegiance is always to the King of Kings, the Lord Christ. What kind of a nation is the church? The church is a holy nation, a holy nation. Holy is one of those religious words that gets batted around a lot rather vaguely. People know that it has something to do with God, but they don't really know what it means. It just means that we are set apart for God, never to be used in a common way. We're always for God. We're set aside for Him. We're all about Him, everything that gives Him honor and glory. No common use, you see. No common use. God, who is pronounced thrice holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, cannot use an unholy nation and cannot bless an unholy nation. We love our country. I love the red, white, and blue. I pray for my country all the time. I believe too many people speak very badly about our own country. I think it's served the purposes of God in a greater way than any other country in the world today. But the United States of America is not a holy nation. The church of Jesus is a holy nation. In fact, we are simultaneously a holy temple, a holy priesthood, and a holy nation. Do you get the idea? Holy, 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 right? Now, some people have a little side question here. What about Israel? I thought they were the nation. I thought they were the holy nation. What happened to them? I want to just say a couple words about that. Many people want to know, did the church replace Israel as God's nation? If you want the long answer, go to David Mora. He'll give you the answer. (laughs) And it'll be a long answer. It takes too much time to give the full answer. My short answer is, did the church replace Israel? Yes and no. Here's what I mean. In the sense that Peter means here, yes, the church is now the holy nation that God is using to reach the world because Israel is unbelieving right now and they're not a light. They're not a light to the nations. And you can just see how few converts they're making, right? The church is bringing in tens, nay, hundreds, even billions of human beings into the kingdom of God. God is working through that nation right now. But the answer is no in the ultimate and in the universal sense. For God has provided definite prophecies about the nation of Israel that will be fulfilled in the end times. That nation in the end times will repent of their sin. They will believe in Jesus as their King and Messiah. And they will be brought into the fold of the kingdom. And in mass that will mean great things for this world. Romans 11 is a great place to start reading if you want a longer answer for that. In the meantime, we function as that nation. We're a secret, invisible nation that penetrates all nations. We don't look like much. People look at us and say, ah, they're nothing to worry about. And yet we take over everywhere we go. That's what happened in the Roman world, right? These Christians were nothing, just a few. What are they? They're like some weird branch of Jews. Don't worry about them. Then all of a sudden, they're, they're spreading everywhere, and now they're having to persecute them. And the more they persecute them, the more they spread. They took money away from them, and the more they spread. And now soon... They took over the whole Roman Empire. That's how Christianity is. Don't worry about China. It's going to be taken over by Christians one day. I'm confident of it. (laughs) 
But because we're holy, we're to function as a holy nation and be set apart for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12 says, conduct yourself with holiness. Are you doing that? Are you going out and leaving church and conducting yourself with holiness while you're out in the world? Or are you snapping right back and acting like everybody else? In 1 Peter 1.15, it said, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That means in your home and in your workplace, you must be holy. In 1 Peter 3.5, it talks about the holy women of old. Ladies, are you a holy woman? Are you really living in a holy way? Does the way you pray and the way you talk and the way you dress reflect that you're a holy woman of God? In Jude, verse 20, it says, You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Our faith is holy. In Hebrews 3.1, it, it calls us holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. In 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, Men in every church are to lift up holy hands, not fighting each other, but lifting up holy hands set apart to the praise and glory of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.26, it even says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Everything we're doing is supposed to be holy. That's what we do. That's what we do because that's who we are. We are holy citizens of a holy nation. We're not a secular nation. We're a worshiping nation. We're an obeying nation. Back to that vision statement, part of it again. Hope Bible Church from its inception has endeavored to be one local body of believers who emulate what Scripture teaches about being genuine followers of Jesus Christ. We purposefully rely on the new covenant presence of the Holy Spirit to create in us a dynamic, worshiping, serving, loving, sacrificing, giving, fellowshipping, evangelizing, an accountable community in which the presence of Christ is manifest through us to this dark and dying world. That's who we are. That's what we do. Our fourth identity, we are a people for God's own possession. We are a people for God's own possession. This takes up most of the space. It's combined with this, for you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Two truths. We are a people for God's own possession, but we once were not a people. Those two truths. And they transform our thoughts. What does it say? God owns us. God owns you. We are God's possession. Just like you own something, God owns you. Why? Because God paid the price for you. He paid the price with the precious blood of his own son, right? That blood bought you. Now you're owned. You're not owned by sin. You're not owned by the world. Listen, you're not even owned by yourself. Your life is not yours. You're not to go out there and say, I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm going I'm to live my life the way I want to, and I'm going to choose my career. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you think that way? Do you understand when you get up in the morning, it's, you are possessed by God, and you are there to live God's will, not your own, that whatever studies that you endeavor to do, that whatever work you endeavor to do, and money you endeavor to possess, all of that is to give something back to the one who possesses you, who bought you. That's your identity. 1 Corinthians 6, I mentioned, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. You can't just go out and do whatever you want with your body. You were bought. You're owned. 
You say, that's radical. You're, you're right, that's radical. Of course that's radical. That's what it means to be a Christian. You die to yourself. Now you live to Christ. He owns you. Acts 20, 28 says, Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Is that you? Do you understand that you're possessed by Christ and he wanted to own you so you would be zealous for good deeds? That's who we are. That's what we do. If you could get this through your head, it would change everything. Say to yourself each day, I live not for myself, but for Christ. Don't be so stubborn. Don't resist him. Don't say, I'm going to hang on to my life. Jesus said, anyone who hangs on to his own life will what? They'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will what? Gain it. Give your strength whatever you have. And you might not have a lot, but give it. Give your strength. Give your talents. Give your gifts. To God, stir up the use of those gifts. Get them going. Use them in the church. What are your future plans? X them out. Offer yourself to God. What does God want for you? When you embrace God's ownership of you, you do what verse 9 says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our message these days is not one of self-esteem, believe in yourself, feel good about yourself. That is not the message of the church. Our message is to proclaim God's excellencies, not our own. So many people are proclaiming their own excellencies in some backhanded way and some not so backhanded anymore. God called you out of darkness. What you had was darkness. You didn't have light inside of you. You and I had darkness, and he called you out of that darkness, and he brought you into the marvelous and glorious light of the gospel of Christ. Believe in God's light. Marvel at God's light. Because once you see the light and you see that you're out of darkness, what do you want to do? You want to tell everybody about it. Listen, if you don't want to tell people about the marvelous light of Christ, it might be because you're still sitting in darkness. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, verse 2 prophesies, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 affirms that we've already been pulled out of darkness. It says that Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness. I'm sorry, God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now we are in his marvelous light. And we are in his light to proclaim his excellencies. That word excellencies, arate, in the plural, means moral excellencies. Or we would say proclaim God's virtues, proclaim God's greatness. That verb proclaim, ex angelo, means to announce forth, thus to proclaim it, to get it out to other people, tell other people, not just the bare bones of the gospel of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, tell them of all of the beauties of who God is really like. They have a wrong understanding about God. Tell them who God is, the real God. In the Septuagint, this term was used 
In the Psalms, in Psalm 9, verse 14, where the psalmist says, I will tell of your praises at the gates of the city. And in Psalm 71, 15, my mouth shall tell of thy righteousness and of thy salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. That's the idea. Now that you're standing in the light, you see that it's so marvelous, you can't help but open your mouth. And it's so amazing, you can't describe it with all the words that you have, but you burst it forth anyways. It's so important to you. Another part of our vision statement says, we endeavor to be a church that has a significant and growing impact on our region and beyond by witnessing the gospel of Jesus, exporting biblical doctrine, planting new churches, and impacting other churches with a biblical philosophy of ministry. As servants of the kingdom of God, our concern reaches beyond our local church to the health and maturity of the surrounding churches and the worldwide church. Reaching unbelievers, planning new churches, helping struggling churches. That's what it is all about. Proclaiming the excellencies of God. God is wonderful. God is marvelous. God is light. And in him there is what? No darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. God is holy. God is just. God is good. God is true. God is faithful. God is kind. God is gracious. God is patient. God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. God is everywhere. God doesn't change. God exists unto himself. He is glorious and majestic and sovereign and unchanging, and so is his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know? We know because once we were not a people, and once we were in darkness, and we had not received mercy, as it says, but now we have. Now we have. In Hosea chapter 2, and tw- verse 23 in the Old Testament, it says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, thou art my God. That's us. That's us. We once were not a people. Now we're the people of God. We once had no mercy. Do you know what it is to have no mercy? It means to understand the guilt of your sin and the power of sin over your life and not able to change it and know that you're going to die and stand before the, 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 the judgment of God and there's no lawyer to help you and there's no one you can buy out. You can't buy him off. You can't, you can't get him to be paid off to give you a good verdict. There's nothing for you. You're doomed. He knows everything and there's no mercy for you. There's just the future lake of fire. People with no mercy. That's what that is. But now, but now in Christ, you are a people who have received mercy. Does that move you? Does that warm your heart? Does that churn you back up again? Does that make you want to do something for God? You were in darkness. Now you're in light. You had no mercy. Now you have mercy. You were not a people to even be considered. Now you're the very people of God, owned and possessed by God. Just imagine coming to the wrath of God and having no mercy. Only the death sentence on you. Listen, as people who have been shown mercy, if nothing else got to you in terms of the designations of the church, just the fact that God has shown you mercy should warm your heart to want to serve him with all your heart and to see that he's glorified through his church. Do you understand that? God's mercy has landed on you. He who so loved you wants you now out of, out of gratitude for his mercy to offer yourselves back to him. That's what he wants. Hope Bible Church, you have been shown mercy. You are people that have been shown mercy. 
And that should motivate you to want to serve him in every area, to be a holy nation, to be a royal priesthood and all of that. I close with one last quote from our vision statement. Again, who we are determines what we do. We endeavor as recipients of the unmerited grace of God to keep improving the quality of our ministries, communications, relationships, teachings, leadership programs, and business affairs until all we do is done with a kind of excellence worthy of our magnificent Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quality worship and service is the right response to a God who has delivered us from wrath and given us an eternal inheritance in Christ. We reject an apathetic or mundane approach to serving the King of Kings, but strive to offer our best to the Lord Most High, who is worthy of our very best. We are people who have received mercy from God. As recipients of His mercy, our life is now lived in gratitude back to Him. Don't ever think what He asks from you is too much. It's not. Don't ever ask when the church is calling for your help, it's too much. It's not. You haven't yet begun to resist sin to the point of shedding blood, have you? And so there's so much more that we have to do for God. There's so much more he has for you to do. Some of you have not used your gifts and your callings the way you need to. Some of you are sitting back. Some of you are professional at listening to sermons and doing nothing with it. And that's got to change because God wants to do more through you. And don't think because someone's not tapping you on the shoulder and saying they need help that there's not help that's needed. They need you. They need you to take seriously the calling of God in your life and realize what God can do in your life. And don't you doubt yourself all you want, but you never doubt the power of God working in you, okay? You are a person that received mercy. God owns you. God wants to use you. You offer yourself to him and never think, never think, never think it's too much because it's not. Our Lord has loved us. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy, that you have had mercy on us, and that we might live more fully for you in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.